Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hi there, friend. I am glad you're joining me on the podcast. I so enjoy our study times together. In today's episode, we continue our journey through the book of Job as we take a closer look at chapters 32 through 37. These chapters are all the words of only one friend, Elihu. Given the fact we know how all of Job's friends seem to talk in circles, we're going to study the entirety of Elihu's speech in this one episode. Don't worry, though, friends. I promise to include some study questions broken out by chapter in today's show notes to help you dig in a bit more in your own study time. Today's plan is to give you some overview of what is going on in these six chapters and then zoom in on a few verses that stood out to me. Elihu's words surprisingly turn out to be a smooth transition to God's arrival to speak to Job, as we will discover in our next episode. God shows up to speak with Job. What? Yep, you heard me right. Amazing, isn't it, friends? But we can't get ahead of ourselves now, can we? First up, friend number four, Elihu, and that overview I promised. Truthfully, I'm going to share some excerpts from the Bible recap, as Tara Lee Cobble's summary of what is happening here so helped me as I began to dig into all of these chapters in my own study. Hopefully, you will find her summary helpful as well. She begins, For the first time in quite a bit of reading, someone new showed up on the scene. And what we know about him right away is that he's very angry. Elihu, this new angry man, is angry at not only Job, but also at Job's three friends, because they were all kinds of self-righteous. Chapter 32, verse 4, makes it sound like Elihu had been there all along, listening to the whole back and forth from everyone, but he's been holding his tongue, perhaps out of some humility, since he was younger than everyone else. But then after listening to them all talk, it turned out that these three older men had nothing good to say, So he spoke up. Age doesn't always equal wisdom, and youth doesn't always equal foolishness. Ilyu points out in verse 8 that it's God, not time, who grants wisdom. It doesn't only come via time and life experience. Sometimes those are the means that God uses, but sometimes he just dispenses it at will. And for Ilyu, he believed God had advanced his wisdom beyond his years, and we'll have to wait a little longer to see if he was right. He starts out by rebuking Job's three friends and telling them that in all their speeches, they were never able to offer a proper rebuttal to what Job said. Then in chapter 33, he goes on to rebuke Job, even though he approaches it with a little more gentleness than the other three did. My pressure will not be heavy on you, he says. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. He seems to stay humble in his approach to rebuking Job, unlike the other friends. Ilhu gets a few things wrong in his rebuke of Job. In verse 9, he says that Job had claimed to be without transgression, and Job never claimed that. The very fact that he offered sacrifices meant he knew he wasn't innocent before God. He knows that if he sat before God as judge, there would be claims against him. In verses 29 through 30, Ilhu points out that sometimes God brings hardship in the temporary in order to bring healing in the eternal. He says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Elihu is basically saying God plays the long game. 
God's eternality allows him a vantage point that you and I don't have, and it solidifies his patience toward us when we're going through trials. It's easier to be patient when you can guarantee the process and the outcome will be worth it. God has this kind of guarantee because of his omniscience, which is just a big word that means he knows everything. But here's the thing about all that. It's true that God sometimes does things like that. But by adding this idea to his speech, Elihu starts to take on the same themes that Job's friends presented, basically saying God let all this happen to quote-unquote bring Job's soul back from the pit. Or in more direct terms, so Job would turn from his sin. I'd hope it would play out differently this time around. I thought Job had finally found a friend who understood, but is all starting to sound very familiar. He starts to accuse Job of walking with the wicked men, of being foolish, and of not only sinning, but also rebelling against God. This is like a broken record. Are you exhausted of the ways Job is misunderstood? Imagine you had just lost your job and your home. Your family was killed. God feels distant, and your friends all just keep rebuking you. And you can't, for the life of you, think of what you might need to repent of. And on top of all that, you're covered in boils. I don't envy Job, but I'm so glad his story is recorded in Scripture because I think we've all experienced seasons of life that feel like this to some small degree. And if you haven't yet, you will. In all of our aches, Job's story reminds us that we are not alone, and he demonstrates how to ache well. Much of what these men say about God is true. It's when they talk about Job that they really get it wrong. So when Ilya points out that God will allow us to struggle in our lives as long as it serves to turn our hearts from darkness to light, it made me so grateful. Maybe this feels cruel to you, but isn't it what all good parents do sometimes? If you're a parent, don't you let your child learn the lessons the hard way sometimes? Especially if you know the long-term consequences of learning something are less detrimental than the short-term consequences of the lesson itself. I know I want the kind of parent who lets me scream through the terrors of a swim lesson if they know it means I won't drown when they take me to the ocean. I love that God isn't always lined up with my desires in the moment and that he can see further than I can. It makes me trust him more. It reminds me that I might not only be right here in the pain and the uncertainty of the moment, but if I can connect to him and learn to trust him in that, then I can access something more than my current emotions. In fact, that's what I selfishly want to connect to Him most. God knows how long the struggle will last, how painful the trial will be, and the strength I'll need to have on the other side of it. Moving on, even though Elihu started off a little more humble in the beginning of his speech, he's become far more self-assured the longer he talks, growing harsher in his rebuke of Job, even bordering on cruelty. In chapter 36, verse 2, he claims to be speaking on God's behalf, and in verse 4, he refers to himself as quote-unquote perfect in knowledge. Wow, Those are pretty big claims to make. Just like Job's other friends, the hard work about sorting through all of Elihu's words is that a lot of what he says about God is true. For example, in chapter 35, verses 1 through 7, he points out that neither our sin nor our righteousness affects God's position or perfection. That's true. He tells Job that his righteousness can't be used for bartering with God. That's true, too. But where Elihu went wrong was in assuming that Job was trying to use his righteousness as a bartering tool. In chapter 36, Elihu points out that godless people cherish anger, which is interesting because in the first sentence we read about Elihu was that he was angry. Certainly there are good things to be angry about. God is angry at sin, for instance, and that's a righteous kind of anger. Being angry at sin and oppression aligns with godliness. But if we're honest, most of the things we get angry about are selfish, which means it would be unrighteous anger. 
And when I think about what it means to quote-unquote cherish anger, that sounds awful. What happens to you when you cherish anger? When I cherish anger, I have a tendency to become increasingly self-righteous. I don't have a desire to forgive the person I'm angry with. I want bad things to happen to them. I start on a path toward bitterness, and my heart grows hard toward people and God. I become cynical and arrogant. And while I don't know his heart, it seems like this could be the trajectory Elihu is on here as well, especially given that his argument keeps ramping up more and more. As we keep reading, we see that Elihu repeats some of his other themes from the earlier parts of his speech. He says things about God like, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, and He opens their ear by adversity. Chapter 36, verse 15. That's true. God does use adversity and affliction to draw people to Himself, and I'm so glad. This trial that Satan meant for evil, God used for His purposes. To purify Job and glorify Himself all the more. Both good things. Often, When life abounds with comfort and riches and ease, it's all too common to feel like we don't need God. It's only His mercy that opens our eyes to the truth that those things don't ultimately satisfy. I have no disdain for a death row conversion or a deathbed repentance. I really believe those challenging times can serve as a way of illuminating the truth. Even the thief who was crucified beside Jesus had a moment like this in his final hours. Struggles can serve as a magnifying glass on the truth. And on the other side of those struggles, if we really see the true value and beauty of an intimate relationship with the Father, we would say those struggles were worth it to know Him better. We'd echo the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. We would say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There was a preacher and theologian in the 19th century named Charles Spurgeon, and he put it this way, I have learned to kiss the waves that strike me against the rock of ages. The phrase rock of ages is a reference to God. When all else is movable, God our rock has been unmoved throughout all the ages. Elihu says some really beautiful things about the ways God speaks, and honestly, I loved reading them. They were like poetry. But in the context, they're also intended to imply that Job is not listening to God. As Elihu wraps up, he praises God's glory and majesty, but in a way that's intended to crush Job, he's using poetry as a hammer. He closes with this statement about God. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Chapter 37, verse 24. It's true that God draws near to the humble. That leads me to think God is drawing near to Job in this, because Elihu has gone on for six whole chapters about how wrong Job is, and Job is not pushed back once. Maybe Job was staying silent out of humility, or maybe he was just too defeated to fight back at this point. A verse in chapter 37 reads, Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. This is called God's providence. It's his protective care and his preparation for the future. He has his purposes, and they may remain a mystery to us, but we can trust that he's at work. In his providence, he's being attentive to every detail, and he's intentional in working out his plan. Maybe it's a plan to correct the hearts of the wayward. Maybe it's a plan to establish and bless his people. And maybe it's just an act of love that is far beyond our understanding. But we can rest knowing that He's working in all things for His glory and our joy in all things. Thanks to the Bible Recap and TLC for this summary of chapters 32-37. through Now that we have this sky-high overview of sorts, let's focus our attention to each of the chapters themselves. How about we start here with this note for chapter 32, verse 1, from the New Living Translation Life Application Bible, which reads, 
If Job was really a good man, his three friends would have to drop the theory that suffering is always God's punishment for evil actions. Instead of considering another viewpoint, however, they cut off the discussion. They were convinced that Job had some hidden fault or sin, so there was no point in talking to Job if he would not confess it. But Job knew that he had lived uprightly before God and others, and he had avoided wrong thoughts and actions. He wasn't about to invent a sin to satisfy his friends. The NLT Life Application Bible goes on to say this about verse 2. When Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had nothing more to say, Elihu became the fourth person to speak to Job. This was the first and only time he spoke. Apparently, he was a bystander and much younger than the others, but he introduced a new viewpoint. While Job's three friends said he was suffering from some past sins, Elihu said Job's suffering would not go away until he realized his present sin. He maintains that Job wasn't suffering because of sin. He was sinning because of suffering. Elihu pointed out that Job's attitude had become arrogant as he tried to defend his innocence. Elihu also said that suffering is not meant to punish us as much as it is meant to correct and restore us, to keep us on the right path. There is so much truth in Elihu's speech. He was urging Job to look at his suffering from a different perspective and with a greater purpose in mind. While his speech is on a higher spiritual plateau than the others, Elihu still wrongly assumed that a correct response to suffering always brings healing and restoration, as mentioned in chapter 33, verses 23 through 30, and that suffering is always in some way connected to sin, as found in chapter 34, verse 11. So in continuing on, the New Living Life Application Bible has this to say about chapter 33, verse 13. Being informed brings us a sense of security. It's natural to want to know what is happening in our lives. Job wanted to know what was going on, why he was suffering. In previous chapters, we sense his frustration. Ilyu claimed to have the answer for Job's biggest question, why doesn't God tell me what is happening? Ilyu told Job that God was trying to answer him, but he was not listening. Ilyu misjudged God on this point. If God were to answer all our questions, we would not be adequately tested. What if God had said, Job, Satan's going to test you and afflict you, but in the end, you'll be healed and get everything back. Job's greatest test was not the pain, but that he didn't know why he was suffering. Our greatest test may be that we must trust God's goodness, even though we don't understand why our lives are going a certain way. We must learn to trust in God, who is good, and not in the goodness of life. Let's hear that last sentence again, my friends. We must learn to trust in God, who is good, and not in the goodness of life. The idea of God, who is good, reminds me of a mantra of questions I memorized when reading a book called Uninvited. Is God good? Is God good to me? Do I trust God to be God? Wow, interesting to consider these, right? Before we move on though, I wanna share with you the subtitle of this book, which reads, Living Loved When You Feel Less Than, Left Out, and Lonely. So needed. I will link to the book and study in the show notes in case you would like to lean into this one a bit more. In the meantime, though, listen in as we examine an excerpt from chapter two of the uninvited book titled, Three Questions We Must Consider. I truly believe recalling these three questions often, but most certainly in the hard Job moments in our lives, will help us to accurately frame our perspective of God. The excerpt from the chapter begins, Is God good? Is God good to me? Do I trust God to be God? I used to have a cautious approach to God. One look at the news and one can quickly wonder, how can a good God allow all this craziness, tragedy, and hurt? 
For years, I would have answered, what do I believe about God with a tilted head and a narrowed expression? I believe he's unpredictable and slightly scary. I didn't doubt God's power. I didn't doubt God's authority, but I did very much doubt God's goodness. However, when we go to the truth instead of our feelings for the answer to this question, we can understand God's goodness in a whole new light. His goodness has been apparent since creation, when he formed and shaped and painted and sculpted this world and its creatures into being. His goodness seeped in with every thought and touch. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, their sin infected and infiltrated the goodness of all God had made. So while there are still good things in this world, the world is no longer a perfect reflection of God's goodness. In Romans chapter 8, verse 21, Paul explains that the world is in bondage to decay, or as some versions say, in slavery to corruption. This decay and corruption is evidence of the brokenness of this world. We see it in the deadly weather patterns, natural disasters, and famines that were not part of God's good design. Cancer, sickness, and disease were not part of God's good design. Car accidents, drownings, and murder were not part of God's good design. Abuse, divorce, and relationship breakdowns were not part of God's good design. The first sin did those things. When sin entered the world, it broke the goodness of God's design. And sin absolutely breaks God's heart. But in no way did sin affect the goodness of God. He has a plan, a good plan, to rid this world of every effect of sin. Psalm 96 verse 13 from the voice translation says, For the eternal is on his way. Yes, he is coming to judge the earth. He will set the world right by his standards and by his faithfulness. He will examine the people. Though we may get our hearts broken from the effects of sin in this in-between time, God's goodness will eventually set the world right. In the meantime, we must hold fast to the truth of who God is and His unchanging nature. God is good. His plans are good. His requirements are good. His salvation is good. His grace is good. His forgiveness is good. His restoration is good. That is what I believe about God. God is good. Is God good to me? Based on my experiences with my dad not wanting me, I wonder what my Heavenly Father's attitude was toward me. After all, how could God just stand by and allow so much heartbreak into one little girl's life? It seemed every three years starting the year my dad left, there was some kind of awful tragedy that cast lingering dark shadows into my life. Abuse, divorce, abandonment, mental illness, the death of my sister, a devastating breakup. The cycle just kept going and going. Even after I had been a Christian for a long time and knew God loved me, I still had this nagging question about why the hard stuff had to be so painful. Was God really being good to me in this? I think C.S. Lewis said it best. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. It's at this point someone at Bible study whips out Romans 8:28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I like that verse. And I think it helps shed some light on the reality that even if something doesn't feel good, God can still work good from it. But verses 5 and 6 from this same chapter give me another layer of assurance. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. What doesn't feel good in my flesh won't make sense in my flesh. But if I have the Holy Spirit in me, my flesh is different because God is there, His indwelling presence with me. 
He speaks reassurance in the Spirit. He speaks comfort in the Spirit. He reminds me He is right there with me in the Spirit. Others might disappoint me and leave me, but God never will. Therefore, I have to keep my mind focused on what the Holy Spirit says, not what my flesh screams. And in my spirit, I know God is good to me. Do I trust God to be God? Once we've stabilized our identity by replacing old feelings with the solid truths that God is good and is good to us, now we have to answer one final question. Do I trust God to be God? This will not just stabilize our identities, but it will fully anchor us. I love these verses, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. The Hebrew word for steadfast used in this verse is samach, which means to brace, uphold, support. Amazing, huh? In other words, those with minds fully braced, upheld, and supported by truth and trust in God will be kept in perfect peace. The mind feasts on what it focuses on. What consumes my thinking will be the making or the breaking of me. Will I trust that God sees and knows things I don't? Will I trust Him when I don't understand, when my circumstances are hard, when people betray or reject me, when my heart gets broken? Will I trust Him to the point where I fully turn the control of my life and those I love over to Him? If God is good, and God is good to me, then I must fill in the gaps of all the unknowns of my life with a resounding statement of trust. God is good at being God. I don't have to figure out my present circumstances. I don't have to fill the silence left behind in another person's absence. I don't have to know all the whys and what ifs. All I have to do is trust. So in quiet humility and without a personal agenda, I make the decision to let God sort it all out. I sit quietly in His presence and simply say, God, I want your truth to be the loudest voice in my life. Correct me, comfort me, come closer still, and I will trust. God, you are good at being God. Oh, friends, I hope you take some time to allow the truths found in those three questions to settle in your heart so you too think of them often in the crazy, sometimes hurtful situations and even seasons of our lives. As we continue on in chapter 34, Listen to first five Suffering and Sovereignty study regarding verses 10 and 11, which reads, So far in the book of Job, we've seen checkbook theology taught by Job's friends. Although their ancient rhetoric may be hard to follow, they are essentially saying that our lives are like a giant cosmic checkbook. When we do good things, we plant deposits or credits in our account. But if we do bad things, our account dwindles. God keeps our credits and debits and blesses or punishes us based on our accounts with Him. Is this true? Do we get what we deserve, whether blessings or curses, prosperity or punishment? Are we responsible for our situation? These are heavy questions to wrestle with, not just for Job and his friends, but for us as well. I think we know this isn't how God works, but when we are experiencing intense suffering or hardship, don't we often resort to this kind of checkbook theology? Perhaps, like me, you've wondered why God isn't blessing your family, easing your pain, or answering your prayers. Maybe you've tried confessing every sin, righting every wrong, and generally hoped to do more good than bad to earn God's goodness and grace. In the deep recesses of our hearts, we like to think we deserve God's goodness and that we don't deserve His punishment or judgment. I mean, honestly, isn't it funny how we can always find somebody who's sinning more than we are? But we're not graded on a bell curve, with most of us in the middle being decent and a few extremely vile or virtuous people on either side. And that friend is the rub. This was the great error of Elihu in Job chapter 34. He thinks God responds to what we do, giving us what our conduct deserves, both good and bad. 
In seasons of suffering, we may shout, I don't deserve this. But the truth is, we don't deserve anything but the wrath of God. It may be hard to believe, but we aren't basically good. We are sinners, and wrath is the righteous anger of God towards sin. The truth is, in comparison to God's measure of perfection and holiness, none of us deserve one ounce of His kindness or mercy. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. That's what Job had experienced before Satan began to test him. It's what Israel experienced when God selected them out of all the nations to be His chosen and beloved people. It's what you and I experience by having employment, a family, a home, or by simply breathing air into our lungs. When I want to focus on my pain and scream, I don't deserve this, perhaps instead I could list all the good things in my life I don't deserve. I don't deserve my husband. I don't deserve my kids. I don't deserve my community or church. I don't deserve our household income. I don't deserve to have clothes on my back. I don't deserve air conditioning. I don't deserve the bed I sleep in at night. Friend, I don't know what you are going through, but it's possible you aren't experiencing God's punishment or judgment. As we've seen through the study of the life of Job, God is often up to something we aren't privy to. But because He isn't punishing us doesn't mean we wouldn't deserve it. In fact, apart from Jesus, that's exactly what I'd receive from God, eternal punishment. The astoundingly grace-filled truth is that Jesus put the riches of heaven into my account. All of His inheritance is mine because He paid for my crimes against God. Every withdrawal I would ever make was not just erased, but replaced with the blessing of God's eternal favor. There is nothing I can do to add to it. There is nothing I can do to forfeit it. I don't deserve God's grace. I simply receive it. So what are we to learn? Rather than asking why these bad things are happening to us, we could ask why good things happen to us. We can praise God for even the smallest glimpse of His grace in our lives. I know it won't be easy. Our pain often shouts louder than our praise. But I believe, I really believe, that we can always find examples of God's goodness toward us. And in the realization of that ask, God, why are you so good to me? Moving on in Job chapter 34, we also see Elihu makes a claim similar to that of Job's friends. The main argument of all of Job's friends was that God only punishes evil. They infer Job's guilt because God seems to be punishing Job. Elihu, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar build their theology or what they believe about God, around the circumstances they observe. They have taken God's actions completely out of context. They didn't know that God allowed Job to be tested by Satan. His friends didn't know that God himself had said that Job was upright, as we read back in chapter 1. Though they acknowledged God's sovereign control over the earth and his perfect knowledge of the hearts of men, they couldn't imagine that he might know something they didn't. Unfortunately, I have been guilty of the same thing. I know that God is far above me and in complete control, but when life gets hard, I forget or ignore that He knows things I don't, that He has information He isn't sharing with me, and that His control means He doesn't have to answer to me. If this study of Job has taught me anything, it's how much I can be like Job's friends. We must keep God's character always in the front of our hearts and minds, especially in seasons of suffering. God can be trusted. He is so much bigger than we are. His ways are beyond our finding out. The author of She Reads True, Suffering, and the God Who Speaks study has this to say about both chapters 34 and 35. When I was a child in Sunday school, someone once told me that God answers our prayers in three ways, with a yes, a no, or a not yet. To be clear, I don't think God's answers are nearly as neat and tidy as that. His ways are mysterious, far bigger and more cosmic than we could ever perceive. As I look back on that teaching now, I wonder— What about when he just doesn't answer? Or what if his answer comes as a painful 
intense, soul-crushing silence. As for Job, he begins to wonder if God even hears him. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. But Job is not the only figure in Scripture who felt the absence of God. In John chapter 11, Jesus delays going to heal his friend Lazarus, who then dies. In response, his sister Mary tells Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Martha had sent for Jesus, and his delay was silence in her ears. In Psalm chapter 13, David cries out, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But in Psalm chapter 55, David speaks with confidence that God really does hear him, even when he feels alone. I complain and groan morning, noon, and night, and he hears my voice. In these chapters from Job, the young counselor Elihu is responding to Job's cry for God to answer. He challenges Job's pride, suggesting that God's silence is in response to Job's pride-filled assertions that he is righteous and does not deserve his situation. Elihu isn't exactly compassionate toward Job, but he does speak some important truths about God. Sometimes God is silent. Sometimes he speaks. But he is always just, the standard of all that is good and holy and right. He is the Almighty, the All-Knowing, the only author and creator and sustainer of our faith. As Elihu says in Job chapter 34, verse 10, It is impossible for God to do wrong, for the Almighty to act unjustly. Reading through the book of Job, this question has come to me again and again. Do you trust Him, even when He seems silent? My honest answer is that I try, but most of the time I fail. I see myself in Job as he protests, but I did everything right. I see myself in Martha, blaming Jesus for not doing exactly what she wanted Him to do. I see myself in David, crushed by sin and desperate to see the Lord. In all things— even his silence. Do I trust that he still holds all things together? After all, he is God, and I am not. Therefore, when God is silent, who can declare him guilty? As mentioned in Psalm chapter 55, verse 17. He does not answer to us. So do I trust the one who spun out the stars, who exhaled creation in all its glory? Do I trust the one who was born in the dark of a cold stable, who wept blood in Gethsemane, who died a brutal death on the cross for me? My only response to his love is to offer mine in return, despite what I see or understand. I believe that one day I'll stand before God in perfect peace, and all the fear and unbelief will be gone. Until then, his word tells me that he is worthy of my hope and trust. He hears my cries and is not indifferent to my suffering, even when he seems silent. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study section, referencing Job chapter 35, starting with verse 6, entitled, Our Faraway Yet Near God, reads, Do you know a know-it-all? She is the one who has all the right answers. He is the one who confidently pours out one fact after another to prove your wrongness and his rightness. Ugh. Oh, how these people bother me. At this point, I wonder if Job feels any friend love. Job's body is covered in sores, his heart is broken from loss, and his spirit feels rejected by God. Yet Elihu continues giving him fact after fact. Like the other speeches, Elihu speaks some truth laced with some fallacies. These untruths stem from one argument. God is transcendent, high above us, and too lofty to reach. This dispute is partly true. God is transcendent. He is high and lofty, governing from His heavenly throne. But God is not only transcendent, He is also imminent, meaning our God is genuinely interested in creation and longs to be in intimate fellowship with it. We see this so clearly in the creation story. God didn't just create the world then return to His throne. He walked among the garden enjoying his creation, and was in fellowship with Adam and Eve. Elihu missed this part of God's character in his retort to Job. 
Often in our suffering, it can seem that God is far removed from what we are experiencing. This is simply not true. But Elihu tries to convince Job of this. Let's take captive the untruths in Elihu's speech and make them obedient to the truth of the character of God. Verses 6 and 7. Our sin and good choices matter to God. In these verses, Elihu suggests that our sin only affects our human relationships. But we know that our sin grieves God. He is faithful to forgive us if we confess our sin. The good we do pleases Him. He is a God of many emotions because He intimately loves His people. Verses 9-11 through 11. When we cry out to God, He hears us. We can trust that God is near to those who are crushed in spirit. He cares deeply, and we can cast our cares on Him. Let's celebrate that He does indeed hear every cry. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Psalm 34, verse 17. Verses 12 and 13. Despite our sin, God listens to our prayers. Yes, we sin, and sin grieves God, but He longs to be in fellowship with us and eagerly waits to hear our prayers of confession. If God turned His heart against the wicked, then how would those far from Him ever be saved? Upon our confession, communion with the Lord is restored and our spirit is renewed. Psalm 51. Elihu's speech was confident as well as eloquent, but it was peppered with falsehoods about the character of God. Friends, we have to know the truth. It's truth that sets us free and builds our faith. It's truth that lights our path when things are dark so that we can recognize and refute any lies that have been hurled against us. I am guessing that you, like me, are so very grateful for the truths highlighted here from Job chapter 35, verses 6 through 13. Thank you, Father God. As I was reading through the book of Job in my New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible, I came across a sidebar about how suffering in our lives affects us. It reads, Suffering is helpful when we turn to God for understanding, endurance, and deliverance. We ask God important questions we might not take time to think about in our normal routine. We are prepared by it to identify with and comfort others who suffer. We are open to being helped by others who are obeying God. We are ready to learn from a trustworthy God. We realize we can identify with what Christ suffered on the cross for us, and we are sensitized to the amount of suffering in the world. On the other hand, suffering is harmful when we become hardened and reject God. We refuse to ask questions and miss any lessons that might be good for us. We allow it to make us self-centered and selfish. We withdraw from the help of others. We reject the fact that God can bring good out of calamity. We accuse God of being unjust and perhaps lead others to reject Him. And we refuse to be open to any changes in our lives. Oh, how suffering affects us. Am I right, friends? Whether helpful or harmful, I'm guessing each one of us could see ourselves in some of the responses on both sides. I hope you go back to replay all of those responses to suffering. And my prayer is that God continues to guide our hearts to helpful responses in the midst of our suffering seasons. So as we continue our study in Job chapters 36 and 37, while reading, I was reminded of Kansas thunderstorms. Yep, you heard that right, Kansas thunderstorms. You probably know the ones. You watch as those thick black clouds with a massive lightning show roll in. Frightening white streaks of zigzagged electricity light up the sky and come down to the ground. The thunder is often so forceful and loud, it can make the windows in your home rattle. God's majesty, power, on display. Did you catch all that talk from Elihu proclaiming God's majesty and praising God? A study note I was reading in the Jesus Bible said, Elihu points out that no humans can control the weather, the storm, or the lightning, but God does. God puts the sky in place and sets clouds wherever he likes. 
No human can look into the sun without becoming blurry-eyed for a few minutes. But God's golden splendor is brighter than the sun. He is exalted, he is glorious, he has great power, and many other attributes too numerous to name. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study adds to all this thunderstorm and power of God talk by saying, Elihu shares about how he doesn't like thunderstorms and confessed it made his heart tremble. Believing the thunder was the roaring voice of God, Elihu told Job to listen and know that God unleashed thunder with his voice to reach to the ends of the earth. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. Job chapter 37 verse 5. Elihu mentioned other displays of God's works and wonder. Snow, rain, driving winds, thick clouds, freezing ice, and the golden sun. All of nature performs so that we would know of God's mighty power. At the sound of God's voice, creation pays attention and does whatever he commands. But what about man? Does he pay attention and notice the wonders in creation and respond to God's greatness? Elihu challenged Job to do just that. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised with those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? Can you join him in spreading out the skies? Job chapter 37, verses 14 through 18. What if we considered Elihu's challenge and took inventory today of how often we pause, pay attention, and respond to the majestic wonders of God? Could we enjoy a cool breeze pushing a bundle of white clouds across the heavens? Might we marvel at how a multitude of colors splash across the sky as the sun slowly dips beyond the horizon? Let's watch the rainfall and notice how a handful of snowflakes sparkle like diamond dust on a bright winter's day. Let us be willing to slow down long enough to capture those breathtaking moments as creation demonstrates God's glory. Let's not allow the hustle of life to keep us moving at such a fast pace that we miss out on the delights He set before us. And when an unexpected heartbreak or long-term suffering tries to blindfold us from God's goodness, His creation is there to remind us of His sustaining power faithfulness, and expression of glory. Wow, all the yeses. As a side note here, you may have noticed the translation used in verse 5 study of Job chapter 37 verse 14 references stopping to consider God's wonders. But my New Living Translation version reads, stop and consider the wonderful miracles of God. The word miracles in the NLT version of verse 14 reminded me of the lyrics of a song called Million Little Miracles, We've been singing during worship out at H2O Church Attica lately. Before I read them, though, I do realize these lyrics speak to the miracles in our own lives, but I just love how we can see evidence all around us of miracles ranging from the majestic to the mundane. All miracles matter, my friend. We just have to have eyes to see them, to stop and consider. Also, just know that I am sharing only a few lines from Million Little Miracles and hope she will be intrigued enough to go to today's show notes to find the link to listen in its entirety. I promise it is so worth the time and effort. The lyrics begin. All my life, I've been carried by grace. Don't ask me how, because I can't explain. It's nothing short of a miracle I'm here. I've got some blessings that I don't deserve. I've got some scars, but that's how you learn. It's nothing short of a miracle I'm here. I think it over and it doesn't add up. I know it comes from above. Miracles on miracles. Count your miracles. One, two, three, four. I can't even count them all. You held me steady so I wouldn't give up. You opened doors that nobody could shut. I hope I never get over what you've done. I want to live with an open heart. 
I want to live like I know who you are. I hope I never get over what you've done. It's not coincidence and it's not luck. I know it comes from above. I've got miracles on miracles. A million little miracles. Miracles on miracles. Count your miracles. One, two, three, four. I can't even count them all. Don't you just love that one too? Such a good reminder to us all. One, two, three, four. I can't even count them all. Okay, we're quickly running out of time here, but I have to squeeze in one more note because, yep, it's just that good. Plus, it ties my little miracle talk together quite nicely, if I do say so myself. (laughs) The NLT Life Application Study Bible says this about chapter 37, verse 23. Elihu stressed God's sovereignty over all of nature as a reminder of his sovereignty over our lives. God is in control. He directs, preserves, and maintains his created order. Although we can't see it, God is divinely governing the affairs in the lives of people as well. By spending time observing the majestic and intricate parts of God's creation, we can be reminded of His power in every aspect of our lives. Also, please don't forget, as I previously mentioned, whether He knows it or not, which, let's be honest here, He probably has no idea, right? Elihu is setting up the scene quite perfectly for God to speak from the whirlwind in the next episode. Yep, you heard that correctly, friends. God is going to show up soon, and His words are so breathtakingly amazing, you absolutely do not want to miss out. Which means you do not want to miss out on the next episode of Open Our Bibles Together. I promise. So, in an effort to drive home this point, this truth that God and Job's conversation is an absolute must, listen to this perspective from the NLT Life Application Study Bible personality profile about Job. When Job expressed his frustration, his friends were ready with their answers. They believed that the law of cause and effect applied to all people's experiences. Their view of life boiled down to this. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. Because of this, they felt their role was to help Job admit to whatever sin was causing his suffering. Job actually looked at life almost the same way as his friends. What he couldn't understand was why he was suffering so much when he was sure he had done nothing to deserve such punishment. The last friend, Elihu, did offer another explanation for the pain by pointing out that God might be allowing it to purify Job. But this is only partly helpful. When God finally spoke, he didn't offer Job an answer. Instead, he drove home the point that it is better to know God than to know answers. Often we suffer consequences for bad decisions and actions. Job's willingness to repent and confess known wrongs is a good guideline for us. Sometimes suffering shapes us for special service to others. Sometimes suffering is an attack by Satan on our lives. And sometimes we don't know why we suffer. At those times, are we willing to trust God in spite of unanswered questions? Wow, what great reminders for each of us in those hard, long-suffering moments and sometimes even extended seasons of life. And after all Job has been through, can I just say how grateful I am to God that he chose to personally show up and speak with Job, to draw near. I have goosebumps just thinking about this moment in Job's life, my friend. I really am getting ahead of us here, but if you haven't noticed already, I am super excited for the next podcast episode content. This is going to be so, so good. As we draw this episode to a close, I want to take a moment to speak directly to those who are listening that are in the midst of their own Job moments. The struggles seem overwhelming. The pain seems to come in never-ending waves, and relief seems so very far, far away. I pray these episodes are meeting you right where you are, touching your heart, and giving you hope for the journey. With that thought in mind, let's join together in prayer, my friends.
Father God, many of us can feel the weight of Job's exhaustion with all this pain, all these losses, all this grief, all the false accusations, all of it really. Help each one of us to hold up under the weight of it all and remember, you are near to the brokenhearted. For those of us hoping to comfort others in their hard seasons of life, help us to recall Elihu, the things he got right and the ways he got it terribly wrong. Elihu attempts to answer Job's repeated question of asking why when he said that people cannot understand all that you allow, but that we must trust in you. We know this is true, God. Help us to recall and truly believe that you are good. You are good to us, and we can trust you. As we learn together today, our greatest test may be that we trust your goodness even though we don't understand why our lives are going a certain way. Help us to fully trust in you, Father God, and your goodness, and not in the goodness of this life. Help us have the strength and perseverance to pass the test. Thank you that in sun and rain, joy and pain, you never let go of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, if this podcast is at all valuable to you, it is a real gift to me if you go rate and review on whatever platform you are listening to our study time together with me on. That would be absolutely amazing. It's an encouragement to me, and it also helps others find us as we study together. And... As a check-in, my Bible study friends, how are you doing? No, really. If you ask me, I think you're doing pretty incredible work. You're here today, regardless of when that is happening for you. The important part is that you're here and you haven't given up. Not only that, but we are almost all the way through the entirety of the first of our study books in the Bible together. Wow. We will be heading back to Genesis soon, but in the meantime, consider what you have learned already. What is the favorite thing you have learned so far? What shifts in thinking or understanding have happened in how you look at God or His Word or the story of the Bible even? You should take time to tell somebody else about these things today. Sharing this may encourage and create some interest in someone who's been struggling to read the Bible for themselves. You could be the catalyst that God uses to draw them near to Him. You, friend, how exciting is that? Sounds like a win-win situation to me. This is M. Faring. And I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.